Welcome to the Age of Audio. My name's Graham Brown from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co. The Age of Audio is a series of conversations with thought leaders and changemakers in the world of audio. That's podcasts, radio, and social audio, converging with big data to create engaging and authentic content for a new generation of listeners. I'm really fascinated by your, not only your adventures, but your documentary work, if you like, and you know, true sort of radio, not journalism, but radio documentaries. I know you did the, the travel one, uh, not travel, but Greece, spent some time doing that and then interviewing people like Sir David. So, um, so where should we start? Let's, let's dive into that. Where, where's the sort of, maybe you can describe a little bit about your audio narrative work and then we can kind of dive into that. So what was probably your big, piece of work that you've done well there's been many pieces uh which have i would call large pieces but the ones that you're referring to was a podcast series called the glass bead game which i um basically made for the university of sussex for the school of global studies mm. um which as a blanket term, you could you could say that that's anthropology. I'm sure that there's a lot of um, academics that would argue that they're not anthropologists. You know, so there a lot of these words uh, are weighted and sensitive. However, uh, the idea was to create a popular platform for academics to share their work with a wider audience, right? And um, I'd actually gone back to the university, which you've had some experience of, right? The mm. University of Sussex. My and old university. Yeah, just as a, I need to exercise my brain a little bit more. I had done this uh, master's in anthropology, in social anthropology. Mm. And I just kept on meeting these lecturers that thought you'd be great in a documentary on this subject or on that subject. And, and I'd been working and still was at that time in documentary film. And so to me, it was the most natural leap to talk to these guys about their subjects and the attraction of it being audio as opposed to a, a huge film project, which I had poured my blood, sweat and tears into previously, was just that it was so much more doable, right? I didn't mm. have to raise 50 grand to even start the whole process. I could just start having conversations with people. So uh, the travel aspect of it, I mean, I think I made 11 episodes of that. One never got released for, because the material was considered too sensitive. But there was 10 different countries in it. So it became a real global tour. And I didn't go to all of them. Some of them, I knew people there or I knew people were going out there. But uh, there was a huge amount of travel. There was Kenya, Greece. I had some great time in uh, British Columbia for the Canadian piece, which was uh, tied in with the David Attenborough climate change. The other part of that was the Paris COP21 agreement, the big one with mm. Obama, where they were going to change the world again. And there was also, there, there was quite a few. It was China, uh, which is um, gay rights in China. And one that mm. I was particularly pleased with, which was um, surveillance, the subject of surveillance and privacy uh, interviewing an ex-Stasi officer um, in Berlin. 
and I just love the offset of Bo uh, of Berlin now being this ultimate kind of bohemian hangout yeah. of almost like symbolism of freedom and uh, you know trustafarians with credit cards. Uh, yet has this backdrop of this mm. you know heavily political subject of your privacy is not your own so anyway big subjects big unsolvable subjects um that mm. was part of the brief i suppose tell me about the berlin one i love berlin as a city yeah and the history and the wall and walking around the wall and the murals and so on yeah for sure i mean i had a friend that had uh, moved out there a couple of years earlier and um I don't know if this is the same with you, but yeah, I think doing this job, there's always um, part storyteller, part uh, voyeur, I think. So I'm always trying to get a hold on what's going on in other people's lives and mm. anything interesting happening. And So this couple friend of mine had moved out to Berlin and the girl, Zoe, was saying, I've started working with this guy whose grandfather was a Stasi officer. Hmm. Um, you know, when I go out and visit them, and they were having the time of their lives out there. They've recently moved to Hamburg, I think, to just dial it back a notch. Uh, but they were having a real hedonistic time. But here was this young man, he must have been about 24 or so, Martin, whose grandfather was a Stasi officer. So straight away, that's, that's super interesting. And hmm. it, had, it was just around the time that Edward Snowden had basically uh, blown the whistle figuratively on the whole NSA mm. thing. So that, I think like a month before, so that that subject was in the culture in a big way. And so I thought, yeah, let's explore this. So she actually did a lot of the leg work. I mean, that was a case where um, I basically had her make relationships with this family and then she went for dinner with them, which was amazing. So the tapes from that, um, you know, and we kind of scripted the questions. Hmm. But his basic line, this Stasi officer, and do with this information what you will, was pretty much that the Stasi weren't that bad. They were no worse. They, they've been painted as these monsters of history. But in actual hmm. fact, the best way to get information out of people is not to physically abuse them, but is to use the same kind of conversational techniques that uh, any other powers would use. Hmm. So all of that, pretty crazy. Normalizing it. Well... Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, there's a, a huge negative, uh, notorious reputation to overcome. Mm. But I offset that with an interview with the head of psychology at um, Sussex, mm. who was not having any of that at all. You know, the Stasi were, were bad people. So it, it's interesting how even within those higher realms of, um, of thought, which universities uh, mm. hope to be, some discussions, you know, were just instantly taboo. I mean, to be fair yeah. to him, it wasn't like he was a history uh, professional. You know, he he was all about psychology. But he had worked on um, for airport security on scanning people um, hmm. th as they walk through, you know, security, and was basically his thing was what they had been using was this suspicious behavior routine which is you look for people that are i guess excessively scratching their nose or shuffling Threating. their feet yeah, yeah. whereas actually his his whole thing was you, you need to have this kind of open dialogue of conversation mm. and mm. you can tell whether somebody's fabricating a backstory or not mm. there's a good book actually uh, i don't know if you read it 
talking to strangers or talking with strangers by this Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell. Gladwell. Yeah, yeah it it's focuses a lot on that about how we misread people. We have a lot of biases inherent when we interview people. You know, a lot of those are reflected back on us. That actually we're generally people are good at reading good people, but bad at reading bad people because that's you know that makes us as a species survive. We generally trust people. Yeah. Because if we were very distrustful, we wouldn't function. But you know that's why you get those sort of holy fool type characters who are like, oh no, you can't listen to this guy, who call it out for what it is. But mm. fascinating. I think that is fascinating. Yeah. Tell us about um, David Attenborough. David Attenborough. Okay, so David Attenborough, uh, the man, the myth, the legend. He uh, is. Yeah, the environmentalist, the celebrity. Um, what a fascinating guy. I, I met him at a memorial service. Um, mm. I had to give a speech. I mean, I didn't have to, uh, but I, I was pleased to give a speech um, uh, for but my great aunt had passed away and she was mm. old school BBC. And um, and he was basically on the bill, if you were. He, um, I, I went on and, and gave a an address about her after him. So a tough act to follow him and Melvin mm. Bragg. Wow. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, made somewhat of a, of a friendship with him. Um, he was a, a great, a very close colleague of my great aunt, but mm. many, many years ago, you know, and I don't think they'd seen each other for maybe 30 years or something. So I basically got this invitation to go to his house um and i sat there and i talked to him for an hour and um i was already thinking you know what how, how can i put this in a show or in a in a format mm. that would make use uh of such a great interview you know what, what a great man and he's interesting in all sorts of levels which i can talk about but as far as putting him into a show i basically thought well he's the storyteller right he's the ultimate trusted storyteller Mm. And for the last 50 years, um, approximately, he has been coming into our homes um, as we all sat round, sit round our glittering, you know, digital fires. And he's told us these stories of the natural world. So this was the image I had in my head. Um, and at this time, uh, I, another friend of mine, I was aware that had moved to Edmonton in uh, northwest Canada. And so he had, he was loosely involved in the pipeline work out there. So anyway, I thought, what a great way to think about David Attenborough as this storyteller um, and to superimpose that, if you like, with the Native American storytelling tradition mm. and how they understand what nature is, our relationship to nature, what climate change is, what that means and and so i became obsessed with this idea that how we understand climate our place in nature is about storytelling mm. um also managed to uh hassle naomi klein to talk to me um i mm. called her on a train which was um, quite funny but again you know a master storyteller she yeah, had just yeah. written this changes everything mm. which i had read and it had actually blown my mind because she was really trying to get in there and talk about narrative, talk about mm, the importance yeah, yeah. of communication for changing paradigms, right? Because unless you're a, a scientist, unless you're working in that field and you understand some of that hard science behind it, it is just stories. 
How, how do you get those human stories out of people like Sir David and Naomi Klein? There's always a risk, isn't there, that they're so good. They've done this so much. They've done so much PR that they're really on autopilot. They can ease. Oh, you want a story about Canada? Yeah, I can tell you a story I've about Canada. You want a story about a train? I've got a story about that. And it's just like, bang, bang, bang. <laughs> how, how do you kind of, I mean, do you work with that or do you try and get behind the veneer a little bit? With David Ambra, it was somewhat of a gift in the fact that he was already set up to be, um, what we say, emotionally welcoming to me because we had this mm. personal connection, right? Um, and I was very fond of my my aunt, so you know we had a lot to talk about with her, and we had, we had already done this. You know, we'd had we'd had quite a moving moment at this memorial service. However, it's funny that you mention that whole autopilot thing because set up this interview and I, I guess I had a month or something like that. And then it, it suddenly it's like, I have to be prepared for this. And, and exactly what you're saying, I wanted to avoid those questions that I knew he would go into autopilot or hmm. that he didn't want to talk about. Um, and so in that instance, uh, it was a real gift that there was so many interviews out there. I mean, I read his autobiography. Hmm. I um, read hundreds it felt like of um newspaper articles and you know uh listened to a whole bunch of stuff and so i got a real sense of what had been asked of him before where mm. he would go and where he wouldn't go um and so yeah i mean that's how i kind of prepared that but yeah as much as anything i'm sure this is something that you practice as well just trying to leave the questions mm. open um and try and leave that dead air um, mm. which again, it was a special circumstance because I was able to do that because we were for all intensive purposes, just having a chat with a microphone on, you know, there was no mm. other bodies there. There was no performative aspect of it. So that, mm. I mean, that was really useful. And his voice, it's, uh, to me, it's like the gold standard of an emotionally engaging voice, you know, the way he speaks to capture that on audio. Yeah. You know, I listened to that and it, as a kid already, you know, I'm not even going to do an impression of him because there's so many people that have done impressions because it's so iconic. And, you know, how beautiful yeah. it is to work with something like that. And it's so rare. The most fascinating thing for me personally, and, and none of this really made it into the program, although I did release the kind of uncut uh, interview of that, which mm. I'll send you if you want, because it's yeah, a fascinating please. chat. But... um he was somewhat surprised, I think, at the age, and he just turned 80, <clears throat> at the age of 80 to be a broadcaster, right? Um, let alone to be one of the world's most famous, most mm. loved broadcasters. He had wanted to be a scientist and he kind of disclosed to me at some point that he had been at some point in his, I guess, early academic career trying to absorb some academic paper. And he just mm. kind of came to this conclusion of, I don't understand this. You know, th this is not going in. This is, this is not for me. My brain doesn't work in this way. And so for him, I suppose it was the next best thing to being close to that subject was to try and, well, not try. I mean, he succeeded. And I think he's extremely proud. Actually, I got a real sense of pride for his life series, you know, that he mm, had mm. created this document of life on the planet. And so although it was as a broadcaster, I felt like for him, that was 
a serious piece of work. You know, it was his、mm. contribution、uh, to try and do something serious, like a scientist would. You know, and it is a serious piece of、mm. work, right?、Mm. And and it kind of fascinatingly it it reflects culturally what's going on at the time with the viewer as well. You know, even down to the way that it's shot and the clothes, mm. but. Mm. The colours, you know, you watch any of that stuff from the seventies, and it's so evocative of being a kid and that voice,、mm. and yeah, he's he's amazing, and and his eye, his understanding of what a celebrity is, and himself as a celebrity, I thought was very、uh, mm. intriguing. And in the last five years, because so this was in two thousand and fifteen, he's actually been quite prominent in many ways. So I mean. Yeah, and and again, the world has changed a lot in the last five years. But yeah, I mean, he's amazing.、Mm. How wonderful it is to meet people like that as well. That that's something, you know, it's a monument in your own career, isn't it? That will never be taken from you. You know, I'm sure there's been highlights, but these things are. You know, you look back on those and think, "Wow, I did that." Yeah, yeah that's always there. A lot of people have said this, but.、Uh, I suppose they mean it as a broadcaster, but as an individual, he's incredibly sincere, and he's very—he's、mm. got that kind of honest face, you know.、Mm. Which again, you know, a lot of people experience that through the screen, but in person,、mm. it's very—it、uh, it kind of de-escalates the situation. Do you know what I mean? So、mm-hmm. after after you'd met him, it's not like, oh Jesus, I'm talking to David Attenborough.、Um, yeah. It's just you're talking to this lovely guy,、yeah. who's really fascinating and had this really interesting life, right? Yeah, amazing. I had a, an experience where I interviewed. It's not David Attenborough, but my celebrity experience was Tony Fernandez, okay, who owns Air Asia and QPR Football Club, and he owns,、um, used to own,、uh, I think it's Force India Racing, the Formula One team. And、uh, it, again, he's like he's he, you know he's he's a billionaire, but as a person, he was extremely authentic. You know, I met him by mistake in a hawker centre. You know, one of these outside food courts, and you know, sat at him with a dinner table, and he sat and he talked for an hour, and then I pitched him the idea of doing a podcast, and he said, "Yeah, let's do it." And then, you know, several months later, I was at the AirAsia HQ doing it, and he's like, "Something about those people. There's something also about them and how they do on these formats on podcasts. They actually, I feel like them." Because in many ways it's liberating, you know. They can be themselves. They can not have to worry about the PR handlers. They can speak in their own voice as well. And suppose if you get to a level where you're constantly doing PR, the fact you can actually do it in a very raw, authentic way is probably quite new to them. And I feel that that's kind of a real interesting part of creating this kind of content as well. Is that we're not just doing another interview; we're giving them a chance to speak in their own voice, which is often not come across in media. I think that's a massive、uh, appeal of the medium, right?、Um, in the sense that you can have what can be long, rambling conversations, but they're they're、mm. honest human interactions, and I think that、uh, when they're done well, obviously, you know, that is very enjoyable for a listener. But I think you're absolutely right. For people taking part, it is far more. It allows them to be far more sincere. I mean,、mm. can you think of anything you know worse than being going through the whole drama and the hype of going onto a TV show? I don't know, Wogan or something like that. <laughs> It's old school. <laughs> and then you've got five minutes essentially. Yeah. 
and you're there selling a book or you're selling a film or mm. whatever it is, right? So you, you can't really go off script. And so you've got to squeeze yourself into the package of what you're pumping out there. You know, it doesn't allow much uh, bandwidth for personality, mm. really, does it? No. And I know you were talking about the film aspect of being, you know, the the, the sheer, you know, the, the heavy lifting done in creating a film version of what you would be doing. I was listening to Tim Ferriss was saying that he did something for Nike or something, I can't remember. But, you know, the 10 hours and for 30 seconds. And they didn't even use the 30 seconds. They cut it right down. So, you know, that, that he said, after that, I committed myself just to doing podcasts because it was just fed up with it. It was not a good use of my time. You know, exactly what you're saying. Well, and it's so hyper manipulated and it can't help but be, you know, and um, we, which isn't to say I don't consume a fair bit of screen time, you know, mm. but I think um, I, I tell you, there's a, ever so slight tangent, but I think this kind of illustrates the point that you're making. The great aunt that I mentioned that uh, worked in the BBC. So she was there really at the birth of television. And mm. um, there's some tapes that she had, uh, which I've still got somewhere, which are absolutely amazing of very early TV magazine interview formats, right? And there's this interview with W.H. Auden, and he's smoking a pipe, which is fine, right? But I mean, Love that it. in itself is slightly anachronistic. Anachronistic? Smoking a pipe. He's obviously there to read one of his poems. So he starts relaying this poem to the camera. His whole face is covered in pipe smoke, so you can hardly see it. But then about 30 seconds in, he says, oh, I'm sorry, I've made a mistake. I'll start that again. <laughs> and so it goes back to the beginning of the poem. Uh, and it's wonderful to see, right? But it's real life and it makes you really Love like it. him. And it kind of gives you this affection for everybody there. Because it's like, wow, what are, the, what are so these people cool. up to? Yeah. I can but, imagine him sitting there smoking a pipe. He's really <laughs> off. But everything is edited to the uh, ninth degree, isn't it? Yeah. Especially in, in film. And I think the beauty of podcast uh or, or radio is that it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, it has its own tricks of manipulating mm. you, but at least it gives the impression of this is a real interaction between mm. human beings being human. Yeah, that's what we need. Who's, who's doing some interesting work at the moment? Who do you listen to? Who do you get inspired by in the world of audio? I, I, I think I've got a wide and varied uh, listening taste. So try me. Okay, so <laughs> one that I love, uh, which I'm slightly embarrassed about, <laughs> but I think I is genius, is absolute genius. Are you familiar with uh, Dan Savage? Dan Savage, well, I know the yeah. name. But... Okay, so Dan Savage is, uh, he does a thing, he does a podcast called Savage Love. And I believe it's also a, um, it's a column. Um, and it's been running for years, right? Uh, it's syndicated newspaper thing. So he's a gay, super cool intellectual living in Portland. And it's basically a relationship, sex advice, phone-in show, right? Mm. But I mean, it's off the scale in its perversity, uh, but it's also off the scale in its humanity. And just... And, and again, you wouldn't be able to do this with film, right? It's the the tone of people's voices and mm. the it, 
it doesn't allow you to set up a prejudice that you would unwillingly to watching somebody confess these things that they're talking about. But the sheer array of human sexual behavior, it, it just blows my mind. <laughs> and I've been listening to this for years. And you and live in Brighton. You and know. I live in Brighton, yeah. But you would think you there'd be a all. limit, right? You'd think there'd be yeah. a fairly finite number of combinations. Mm. And uh, so that that is amazing. <laughs> but it's, it's often people really struggling. Permutations with the moral aspect of of what yeah. it is they're trying to do and he's very good uh and you know basically reading, yeah. a thousand different ways to reiterate the idea of everything's up for grabs just don't be an absolute asshole let me go somewhere else with it on a slightly more family viewing <laughs> conservative uh, conservative uh audience there's a wonderful um podcast called the memory palace i think we might have talked about this oh sounds uh, like Sherlock fleetingly Holmes. before what well, it's a um single guy uh single voiceover so monologue which he's obviously written the guy's name is matt uh tomeo i could have that wrong matt tomeo anyway mm. great speaking voice but it's more this lovingly concocted He's painting really with sound. It's this music and sound design and a beautifully written script and a lovely sense of research. So mm. he's basically telling uh, little historical vignettes. He's creating little historical mm. vignettes for you, but they're so lovingly done. And when they get you, it's like, that's amazing. And they vary in length and they vary in subject matter. Nate DeMeo. Nate DeMeo. Okay. Sorry, Nate, for getting your name wrong. I've been I love listening that to word, that vignette. Quite a lot. That is so like it's, it's such an evocative word, isn't it? Vignette, like to use it to use it the right way. You know what you're doing. That stands up for his pieces. I think his mm. Jesus, he's part of the Radiotopia group. I know that, mm. um, and they do some really interesting stuff. And so normally I don't really stray into the kind of fiction. Mm. narrative uh, and his i mean it is fiction but it's also historical um so i i think he's quite special he's the only person i know that is occupying specifically that place yeah that's a really cool one yeah they're really good i want to check that one out uh, what how what, why does it appeal to you is it the production is it the storytelling what works for you yeah i think it is probably the production the production mm. values are so high in that that um, it speaks to the musician in me. You know, I feel like he's um, he's releasing an EP, you know, or a, mm. or a lovingly crafted single each time he puts out an episode. So, yeah, there, there's something quite special. And again, it doesn't always interest me, but when the subject matter's right, um, mm. it's really good. And then some of the other uh, bigger ones I really like, I've got a real thing for Sam Harris. I think he's mm -hmm. exceptionally interesting. Um, again, the subject matter is not always what I want to hear about at that moment because they can be quite heavy and quite dark. Yeah. But um, I, I love his bravery to mm. try and talk about subjects which are so politically loaded at the moment. Yeah. And actually, that's worth talking about. We're talking about formats. You know, he's gone to great lengths to be, in his own words, uncancelable uncancelable mm. uncancelable mm. um in how he's done his funding system and and i th i find that quite interesting 
because he does a he switched to a direct subscription model right mm -hmm. after years of putting this stuff out for free which honestly pissed me off at first because it's like okay i feel like i've had this relationship with this guy mm. which has been hasn't been a capitalist um you know there hasn't been an exchange of money and now he's asking me for money so like we're, it's it's funny how these things kind of evoke particular feelings in you not that i'm a kind of screaming marxist and don't want to pay for anything but it was you know suddenly he was asking me to pay but what he actually did which uh made me end up paying for it was he said look i don't want money to be the reason why anybody can't listen to this so it's mm. a subscription model but if you can't pay write to me and tell me that you can't pay and i'll give it to you free for a year and then in 12 months we'll check in again and if you still can't pay, then we'll do the same thing. And again, that that way to get you know squeeze humanity through these uh, these platforms, these applications, mm. that spoke to me. You know, I already had a um, relationship with this guy and his content. That really worked for me. Just that offering of I'm not trying to fleece you. It's just yeah. I'm 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 offering you the chance to support this uh, regularly. That's pretty cool, and it worked. A bit of honesty. Well. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't know anybody else that offers that because I find the whole paywall thing mm -hmm. quite interesting. I mean, I don't know where you're at with all of that, but um, it would seem to me you would need to be offering something exceptional to put mm -hmm. up a paywall. And I don't often pay for content because my life is so ram-packed with digital content. I can't get through it all, right? So yeah, the idea that cool. I would pay for more stuff... I'd have to, the perception would have to be that it was essential, you know, listening mm. uh, and stuff that I really needed. You've been listening to The Age of Audio with me, Graham Brown, from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co. To get access to all the audio conversations and book content for The Age of Audio, go to www.theageofaudio.com. One more time, theageofaudio.com.